This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, today I'll be speaking with you guys about fragility fractures, what they are, um, who they affect, and then what do we do with them. Um, now, um, how many people know what a fragility fracture is? Yeah, a couple of you do. Okay. Okay. Does anyone know someone who's had a hip fracture before? Family member? A hip fracture or a spine fracture, some sort of like a wrist fracture? Yeah, pretty much a lot of people out there. I'm not surprised not all of you because we all have parents, we all have grandparents, they have fall, grandma broke her hip, etc. So that's sort of the focus of our talk today. Um, First off, I have no financial disclosures or any sort of relationships. This won't have anything to do with industry. It's really just talking about guidelines and sort of recognizing different types of fractures and what to do with them. So in terms of what we're going to talk about, we're going to obviously talk about fragility fractures. What are they? We'll define them specifically and what they mean for the general public. What do they mean to you as a person? What do they mean to you as a family member? What do they mean to you as just another citizen in this country and what, and what can we do about them? And then I'll touch... A, a little bit on how we treat them, but I think what's more important than what, how I treat them as a surgeon is how you approach treatment as um, a layperson. So why don't we get started? Um, the first thing we'll talk about is what are fragility fractures? And I think we need to take a step back and first of all talk about fractures themselves. I get this question a lot. Is it fractured or is it broken? And I get it more than I should, but they're really the same thing. Just fracture is a fancy term. Instead of saying a broken bone, we use fancy terms like fracture. Okay? So fractured is um, a broken bone. Okay? And we have multiple ways that we describe fractures, right? We, we can describe them by the pattern. We can describe them by their location, what bone they're in. We can describe whether or not it was a closed injury, meaning that the skin isn't broken, or an open injury, meaning that the bone is sticking out. It's something that's very grotesque that I got very used to. But we can also describe them in terms of mechanism, how it happened, right? And sort of the force that sort of went into breaking that bone itself. So we all know this type of fracture, right? A traumatic one, right? And and this is the kind of fracture that I see all the time where people are riding their bikes, they they, um, fall down, Um, people on their motorcycles, they're on the highway and they crash into the median, people in the car crashes. Like these are high speed energy um, fractures. And by traumatic fractures, I mean that the event that happened that caused the break makes sense in a normal person, right? When you fall off a motorcycle, you're probably going to break something, right? In anyone. It doesn't have to be old, young, anyone, okay? So that is just a traumatic fracture, all right? Then we talk about metabolic, okay? And a metabolic fracture means that there's an underlying disorder within the bone itself, whether how the bone is being produced or the composition of the bone that actually makes the bone weaker and it increases the fracture risk. So, for example, this is a kid with, uh, with osteogenesis imperfecta. So there's a, something um, weird going on with how he produces collagen. And that makes the child more prone to fractures. So his bone doesn't act like a normal bone. It is inherently different in its composition. And then another type is pathologic. So these are ones where some other disease process is going on that then weakens the bone. And the classic example of this is a tumor, like a metastatic cancer, where the tumor starts to invade the bone, and it eats it from within side or from the outside, and it weakens the structure of the bone itself. So there's nothing wrong with the bone itself, but there's something else going on in the body that is thus affecting the bone and causing it to be weak. 
And then we go to our last type of fragility fracture. Okay? So fragility fractures occur in structurally weak bone due to aging and bone loss. Again, this is different than traumatic one because a traumatic, you have normal bone, just a very high energy mechanism. It's not metabolic because there, it's a normal disease process, normal aging, okay? And there's nothing else that's affecting the actual composition of bone itself. The bone is inherently normal, it's just weaker, okay? And then um, it's not pathologic because there's nothing else like cancer going on, all right? This is, these are often associated with a disease that we know as osteoporosis. How many of you have heard the term osteoporosis before? Thankfully, almost all of you. If you haven't raised your hand, I'm assuming you know as well, because it's a very important topic that's the central theme to tonight's talk. So osteoporosis is defined by a loss of bone mass and bone architecture. Okay. So this is an example of normal bone on the left. This is trabecular bone, right? So in a bone, we have two different types of two different parts. One, you have the thick outer cortex, right? So in long bones, like your femur, you have this big, thick outer cortex. But in the middle, at the ends of the bones, right, around the joints, you have this spongy type that are trabecula. And this is what it looks like under a light microscope. So you can see that there's almost this lattice network of bone that's forming. They interdigitate, they connect, and they help distribute the force throughout the bone itself. And here you have osteoporotic bone. Okay, this is what it looks like under a light microscope. So it looks like bone, but there's less of it. It's not just that there's less of it, but it's that you start to see detachments, right? As opposed to here, where you can see that they're all interconnected, and thus they're all helping to distribute the force. Not only are the trabecula, those, um, the lattice network, thinned out, but it's also broken. There are, there are holes. And so you can't distribute the force. So not only do you have a thinner bone, but you have empty areas, and thus it, those areas that are still left experience more of that stress. So this is structurally um, much weaker than normal bone. Okay. So what's the underlying root of osteoporosis? Well, you have to take a step back and look at how bone normally works. In every sort of bone isn't just a static structure, it's actually very dynamic. And throughout, the, throughout your entire life, even right now, your bone is undergoing multiple processes. It's always going on, undergoing this remodeling process. And the remodeling process actually begins by the bone breaking down, right? So for example, if you have an injury, not even like a frank fracture, but let's say you have um, you know, just like a bump or a bruise on your bone, or just like even a micro fracture, not, not even complete, it's just a small little crack in a bone. Your body senses it and it says, oh, I have a small little crack or I'm experiencing more stress. Let me do something about it. So the first thing it's going to do is it's actually going to absorb the injured bone. So it's going to send a signal out to these cells called osteoclasts. And the osteoclasts have acid in them, it has enzymes in them that help digest the bone itself. But once it does that, then the osteoclasts that digest the bone then send out signals like, okay, I've done my job. I've taken out the disease portion. And now I'm going to bring in other cells to actually rebuild what I just broke down. And then it brings in and recruits these other cells called osteoblasts. And those osteoblasts are responsible for building the new matrix. And as it builds a new matrix, it then becomes mineralized with calcium, and that's what actually forms the actual bone. So this goes on throughout your life. And it, these two processes are very tightly coupled. Right? In order to build bone, you break down. Right? You can't just build bone, build bone, build bone. Because if you kept building bone, it leads to other diseases. Okay? And we do see that in, in patients who have problems with one of these cells. If they keep building bone, it leads to other problems as well. Right? So this is tightly regulated. And you can imagine in your body, you don't want to have an imbalance between the two. Right? You always want them to be in balance. All right? 
So imbalance is whether you're producing too much bone or absorbing too much bone then leads to problems. So in a healthy person, those two processes are tightly regulated, they're coupled, they're balanced. In osteoporosis, however, you have a net loss. So your body's actually resorbing more than it can actually build. Okay. And then on the flip side, you have another disease called osteopetrosis. Petrosis, like, as in forming like rock-hard bone, like Petra, um, where you actually have a neck gain and you're building a much um, thicker bone. So over the course of time, your body's ability to build, build bone and break down bone will change, right? And this is affected by multiple things that can affect the balance between those two processes. The first thing is age. Right? At a certain point, our body can't produce as much as we used to with, than when we were 20. You know, we're no longer kids, we're no longer teenagers, so our body is unable to keep up with certain processes. Hormones play a huge role, and we can see that in this graph over here. Right? So not only with age, after, after the age of 30, um, our bone mass actually starts to go down. Okay? But there's a gender difference. Okay? And there's not just a gender difference, but in women in particular, once, once women hit menopause, your hormones will change. Right? The estrogen levels will change in your body. And the estrogen is important because it's protective. It prevents the resorption. The estrogen is one of the signals that says, hey, don't break down my bone. And when women hit menopause and the estrogen levels change, you lose that protective barrier to preventing um, a net loss in your bone. Okay, so whereas in men you see the steady decline after you reach your peak bone mass at 30 years old, in women there's not just a decline over time as you go through your middle ages, but after menopause there is a sharp decrease and then it continues to decline over time. Your environment can play a role too, and we've also noticed this in various studies, like in Scandinavia when there's not as much light, you don't get as much vitamin D, so your ability to build bone and the resources it takes for your body to actually build your skeleton um, changes with seasons. All right. um, genetics is also, also plays a role. Okay? And we have yet to fully define what the genetics are, but we do know that parental history is important. So if you had a family member who had a hip fracture, that is a risk factor for you um, in the future as well to have a hip fracture. Lifestyle can also play a role. And this, this includes habits like smoking, like drinking, um, also your diet also plays a role in nutrition. Um, pa patients who have eating disorders like anorexia, they're not bringing in the proper nutrients to actually feed their bones. In fact, this also affects their hormones as well. Patients with anorexia get amenorrhea. That changes their estrogen and progesterone levels, and that also affects bone, bone as well. But did you know that medications can also affect your bone quality, right? specifically steroids? Right? So that is also one of the big risk factors as well. So medications can play a huge role um, in in your bone health. Why do we care so much? Well, osteoporosis is a very big deal. Um, 8.9 million fractures are attributed to osteoporosis every single year. Okay? What, so that means in women who are greater than 50 years old, one in three of you will sustain an osteoporotic-related fracture in your lifetime. One in three of you. So look around in this room and imagine a third of the women will have some sort of fracture, a hip fracture, a spine fracture, or a dislocated fracture related to osteoporosis. And in men, men aren't safe either. It's, it's one out of five. So 20% of the men in this room, statistically, will get some sort of fracture. Okay? The combined lifetime risk for a fragility fracture is 40%. 40%. That's a huge number. That is almost half. Okay? 
And we'll go into this in more detail when we actually talk about specific fractures, but once you have a fracture, they're painful. Whether it's in your spine, whether it's in your hip, whether it's in your disarray, these are painful fractures. And they cause a lot, not just disability, but they cause prolonged hospitalization, need for procedures, et cetera. There are three that we're going to sort of talk about today. Um, the first one is a, a hip fragility fracture. The second is a vertebral or spine fragility fracture. And the third is upper extremity fragility fracture, specifically distal radius. Okay. I'll focus a lot of my time on hip fragility fractures uh, because I think there's been a lot uh, more that I'm familiar with as a trauma surgeon. Um, but certainly you can ask me about any of those at the end of the lecture. Okay. So let's talk about hip fragility fractures. Again, how many of you know someone who's had a hip fracture before? So yeah, that makes sense. Okay, a lot of you, a lot of you, right? So hip fractures are becoming a worsening problem over time. So in the 1990s, um, hip fractures increased by 25% alone. Did you know that? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty big number, okay? And by 2050, so in about, in about 30 more years, we're gonna, we're gonna have um, 4.5 to 6.3 million hip fractures per year. Remember, right now we have 9 million overall in general, but in 30 years, it's gonna be 4.5 to 6.3 million projected per year, okay? Why is this significant? Well, in white women, your lifetime risk is one in six for having a hip fracture. This is higher than your risk of breast cancer, which is one in nine. And in fact, in, in women who are greater than 65 years old, your risk of, of um, mortality from osteoporosis is the same as that for breast cancer, okay? 20% will die in the first year after a hip fracture, okay? In some, in some series, it goes up to 30%, okay? And that's not simply from the fracture itself. We think it has, a, a lot of other things to do with it, like your general wellness, your ability to keep balance, other comorbid conditions that lead you to increased falls and put you at risk anyways. Okay. The other thing is that a fracture begets a fracture, and this is one of the key take-home points of this talk. It's not just that you sustain a fracture, but that fracture alone puts you at risk for another fracture. So it almost, when you have a, any sort of fracture, it almost doubles your risk of sustaining another fracture. And then for hip fractures themselves, you have a profound loss of function. And I see this um, all the time in my clinic when I treat hip fractures. 40% um, are unable to walk independently, meaning they require assistive devices, they require someone to help them, they require a walker. And in some cases, I actually encourage my patients to use a walker. The reason why, and, and we'll talk about this at the very end, is you don't want them to fall again. I'd, I would rather have them walk with a walker than fall again and sustain another hip fracture. 60% will require assistance, and um, almost a fifth will require long-term nursing care, so we'll never be able to be independent. Okay. If we were to graph someone's um, uh, course of osteoporosis over the course of their lifetime, it can start with something as simple as a wrist fracture, then you can have some other fractures related to weaker bones, but look at the spike in your morbidity, meaning the complications, the dysfunction, the surgeries that you need after the same one of these fractures. There's a huge jump after a hip fracture, and that stays, that doesn't go away. Okay, as opposed to if you never had a hip fracture, this is your normal morbidity. You can see that in this graph, there's a huge, there's a huge spike in that as well. Okay. So clearly hip fractures are really important and, we, and if anything that you take from this talk, it's about the prevention of further fractures or prevention of the index fracture to begin with. Okay. Let's talk about the hip anatomy itself. So the hip itself is a ball and socket joint. Okay, it means it's a very constrained joint. So this is the femoral head. The acetabulum is known as the socket. Okay. 
Um, there are also other parts of the HIP that we care about um, that, will, that are important for this talk. One is the greater trochanter. It's this bony prominence over here. This is where your hip abductors attaches. So your hip abductors are on the outside. They help bring your leg out like this. Okay, but they're also important because they stabilize your pelvis. Okay, and they stabilize your hip. You also have a lesser trochanter. So you have a greater trochanter. You have a lesser trochanter over here, and this is where your hip flexors attach to. So this is how you lift up your hip this way. Okay. This is blood supply, and this is important for understanding why we do certain procedures and why, why we do things a certain way. So the flow to the femoral head actually comes in the reverse way. The femoral head has a lot of cartilage, and the cartilage can't really have holes for blood supply. You really don't want a, an artery traveling through your joint, right, especially in a very constrained joint where there has to be a lot of movement. So it actually um, it starts in the femoral artery, okay, and you have circumflex arteries. So these circumflex arteries come out from the femoral artery, they loop around the trochanters, okay? And um, after they wrap around, they then send blood vessels through the neck up into your head. So in a way, it's reverse flow. It's not going directly in the head itself. It's actually coming up from the trochanters into the head. Okay. Now, the hip fractures are classified by their location. So um, femoral neck, intertrochanteric, subtrochanteric. So remember back here, we sort of talked about those different regions, so that's greater trochanter, that's lesser trochanter, that's a hip, this is sort of the capsule, that's a socket. Okay. So we classify them by location, and the reason why we care about that is because, uh, one of the reasons why we care about it is because of its blood supply. So a femoral neck fracture happens here, so this is the area of the femoral neck. Okay. An intertrochanteric fracture happens between the two trochanters, so at the level of the trochanter, so through here or through here. Okay, and a subtrochanteric fracture happens below all of that. Okay, the reason why we care is because femoral neck fractures have an issue with blood supply. Because the blood supply comes up in here and you have a very displaced fracture, you're disrupting the blood supply. So the likelihood that that bone will heal in anyone, young or old, goes down the more displacement that you have. Okay, and so for femoral neck fractures, the treatment for that is going to be a lot different than the other fractures where the blood supply is presumably preserved. This is one example of a displaced femoral neck fracture in one of my patients. You can look at the left side. That's the normal side. So here you see the femoral head. Here you see the femoral neck. Here you see the greater trochanter. Here's a lesser trochanter. Okay, this is acetabulum in the socket. And you look on this side, right? You see the trochanters. You see the neck, but look, it's broken, and that's where the femoral head is. So do you see that break? Does everyone see that break? Okay. This is an intertrochanteric fracture, right? So not a femoral neck. So again, on the left side, look, reference it for the normal side, um, the greater trochanter, lesser trochanter, the femoral neck, the femoral head, the acetabulum, okay? And then you can see the fracture over here. So the femoral head and the neck are still attached as one piece, but the fracture is at this level. If I want to mark it on the normal side, it's right here at this level, okay? And you can see that it's not just a simple break. There are pieces all over the place. So when we talk about hip fractures um, and hip fracture treatments, virtually all hip fractures are treated with surgery. Um, this is a point that I made to all my patients, especially the ones who are hesitant about surgery. Like, oh, I don't, I'm worried about surgery itself. But we found that there's a lot of morbidity and mortality related to non-operative treatment in, in hip fractures. Um, in fact, for, for me to agree to no surgery, the patient really has to be sick. Like, has to be critically ill to the point where they will not survive the surgery. 
Okay, and even patients who are very sick of uh, medical problems, we still push for that. The reason for for it is multifold. Okay, one is pain. Right, it's painful to have a broken hip and be lying in bed. Okay, we wouldn't let you walk because it would just shift things more and the fracture would never heal because there's too much movement if you were to try to walk. You certainly can't put weight on it, right, because your hip is broken. There's no way to do that, all right? And so the non-operative treatment would mean the patients sit in bed for six weeks until something heals, okay? Um, and they waste away. They get a, a tremendous amount of atrophy, even within the first week. Um, their pain requirements go up. Because they're lying in bed all day, they can't sit up. They can't aerate through their lungs, so they get pneumonia. Okay? And then they're in bed, so they get bed sores. Okay? So it's not simply that you have a hip fracture that may or may not heal. It's all the other things that come with having to be in bed um, to avoid surgery. Okay? So, again, virtually all of the patients who have a hip fracture will get some form of surgery. All right? In fact, we've, even, we've gone through in multiple studies to look at when we need to do surgery, how urgent, and we found that the earlier you do it, the better. Okay? If you delay the surgery beyond 48 hours, we know that that increases your mortality, increases the complications. Okay? And on the converse side, early surgery helps um, in immediate weight-bearing. Patients get up immediately and walk the next day. They can, um, and they can get up and breathe better and... Um, do their activities daily living. They don't have to be in bed all day. Different types of hip fractures are treated differently. So this depends on the fracture configuration. So how much is it displaced? Where is the fracture taking place? Okay, and that sort of determines the treatment from my perspective. So this is one example. This is a non-displaced femoral neck. Okay, again, you can see the neck over here. You can see the trochanters over here. The break is actually over here. It doesn't look all that bad, right? And if we actually get a CT scan, we see that on one part, on one side. You can't really see a fracture line. You can't see um, a step-off between the two cortices. But you look up into here, you can see that there's clearly some sort of step-off. So if anything, the head was sort of crunched into the neck backwards. Okay? But it's not, it hasn't really shifted that much. It hasn't really torn the blood vessels. All right? So for this one, we can actually put in screws and just sort of secure it in place. Okay? Some would even argue um, that you may not even need surgery for this. But I think most trauma surgeons would advocate for surgery okay, in most patients. Then you have the other side, where you have a, a fracture of the femoral neck that we saw before that is completely displaced, right? So presumably, the blood, blood vessels have all been torn, right? It's not getting a blood supply, so it's very difficult to heal this fracture, all right? And especially in osteoporotic bone, where it's not that strong, you can't get a good hold of it to secure it in place until it heals. So for these, we generally recommend some form of joint replacement. So this is what we call a hemiarthroplasty. Arthroplasty just means some sort of joint replacement. Hemi means half. Okay? So in this case, all we did was just replace the ball and put in a stem, and we cemented it in place. And these patients can bear weight immediately because the cement secures that metal uh, stem to the rest of the bone. All right. So historically, we've treated all these with um, a hemiarthroplasty, um, but we're not doing anything to the socket side. That still has cartilage, and we know that metal against cartilage probably doesn't fare well. Metal usually wins against cartilage. So this sort of has a lifespan, right? And in general, we say about 10, 15 years. So while it'll work great for someone who's 90 years old and they'll probably outlast that hip, someone who's 70 years old or 60 years old, they have hopefully a long time to live and they might outlast that hip, which means that metal may run, may, may, um, 
cause too much rubbing against the cartilage and cause it to wear out and lead to arthritis on that side. So um, in, in the past 10 years, we've actually looked at doing a total joint replacement. Has anyone heard of a total hip replacement before? Yeah, you've seen like ads for it. So people have actually advocated doing a primary or acute uh, total hip replacement for these patients, especially the younger active people. The idea is that these patients are active so that they're expected to live longer, and the total hip allows them to do more activity, and you're not worried about the metal um, burning out the cartilage on the other side since you're replacing both sides of it. Okay. And, and the results have, show, have been promising in that patients actually do better with the total hip, especially the younger ones across the board. Okay. But they do have risk. Total hips do have a higher dislocation rate because it has a much smaller head to it. So because the radius of that head is a lot smaller, to dislocate, it, it needs to travel even less distance than, let's say, a hemiarthropod that has a very large head. Next, we uh, talk about intertrochanteric fractures. Okay, so this is, again, through the level of the trochanters. That's a greater trochanter. That's a lesser trochanter, all right? We can put in a screw, all right, to stabilize it. So with this particular pattern, all right, the hip wants to travel this way, right? Imagine putting your weight through your hips, and the bone actually wants to travel down this way, all right? But it may also slide down this way. So the purpose of this hip screw is to actually almost act like a buttress, by putting this screw in, I'm, putting, I'm engaging the head, and I'm allowing the fracture to almost collapse on itself. So it's compressing itself. That's how this particular um, screw works for this particular fracture. This is one of the standard ways we use to treat um, intertrochanteric fractures a lot. But the tides have actually shifted. So same type of injury, right, in an intertrochanteric fracture. Again, you see a fracture line over here. You see the greater trochanter over here, the lesser trochanter over here. So intertrochanteric fracture. All right. And we've actually now switched more over to using a nails. Okay. A nail is basically a metal rod that goes within your bone. Okay. So one side goes down your bone into the shaft, and it could be short, it could be long, there's no difference between the two. And then similar to the other example I showed you, there's a screw that goes into the head itself and engages the femoral head. And these two these two um, parts of it lock it in place so that way the hip is stabilized, it remains, keeps its angle, and because you're buttressing from the inside, the patients can uh, immediately weight bear through it. After, um, after I fix someone's hip, I allow them to weight bear immediately, and that is the goal, to try and get them on their feet, try to get them moving, prevent blood clots, um, prevent delirium, improve their pain, um, get better aeration in their lungs. All these things are really important early on as soon as I can, and so I make my patients eat all their meals in a chair, okay, so they're not sitting in bed all day. I make them at least get up to the edge of the bed um, as often as they can, okay, with physical therapy, with a nurse. I try to move patients as quickly as I can, not to the point of torture, but to the point of trying to recover them from surgery to get them back on their feet. We know that even within the first week of lying in bed, you lose a significant amount of muscle mass, and that's across the board. So imagine that for an elderly person. The elderly patients will never recover from that, from that muscle loss. Okay, so I try and get patients up and out of bed. Um, I start medications to prevent blood clots, not only because of the trauma, the trauma can cause a blood clot, but also lying in bed can cause a blood clot. Um, they get IV antibiotics, and they definitely get physical therapy for rehabilitation. The physical therapists are also the ones that help evaluate you to see if you're safe enough to go home versus going to a rehab center or going for more inpatient rehabilitation. So they're the ones to impress, 
Okay, they're the ones. They're the ones who are going to help turn her fate. But more so, they're looking out for you. They're using their expertise to say, "Hey, I think that you're safe to go home. I'm not worried about you falling." Versus, actually, you seem very unsteady and you can't walk as far and you can't be independent. I don't think it's okay to go home and put yourself in an unsafe environment. So these are really important people um, in our practice, but also in your care. I'll talk briefly about um, spine fragility fractures. Okay. Again, these are common osteoporosis, so about 1.4 million occur worldwide. So while it gets a lot of attention, it's not one of the most common ones. Hip fractures are by far the most common. In the time that we've talked, probably six spine fragility fractures have, ta- have occurred. Right? So one, fr- one spine fragility fracture occurs every 22 seconds. Right? A 50-year-old woman has a 16% lifetime risk of sustaining a vertebral fracture, but yet only one-third of those fractures are clinically recognized. And this was certainly true when I did my spine rotation here as a resident. You would just notice some of these elderly patients coming in with spine fractures, but we would say they would never be able to tell me, oh, I had a fall or something. It just sort of happened. They notice themselves slowly slumping over, getting shorter over time. Um, Spine fractures are important because it does lead to back pain, deformity as your spine starts to collapse. Right, you start to hunch over, and you start to lose the alignment in your spine. Um, it leads to poor mobility, and because you're hunching down over, you can't take as many deep breaths with your diaphragm, and so it leads to reduced respiratory function. Um, after a spine fracture, you have an eightfold increase in mortality. Okay, and then again, a fracture begets a fracture. So. If you sustain a spine fracture, you have a one in four chance, so a 25% chance of sustaining any other fracture within the next five years. This is one example of a normal bone. Again, you can see that there's this great architecture of bone. You see this lattice work of the trabecula that's actually forming this network to distribute the force. Where an osteoporotic bone, it's thinned, it's porous, um, it's disconnected from each other. Okay? This is another example okay, of normal bone versus um, osteoporotic bone. Again, you see this intense lattice work of trabecular um, bone that's interconnected and distributing the force. Whereas in here, you can again see the holes and see the trabecular thin. This is what we see on X-rays. So again, these are these are normal, relatively normal in terms of um, shape, and you can see how much it's crushed. It's, it's lost about fifty percent of its height. Okay, and you can imagine if multiple fractures occur in. Um, together or next to each other, that it's going to start to angle your spine forward. Next, we'll talk about distal radius fragility fractures. And one thing is that hip and spine fractures are traditionally the ones that we thought about fragility fractures related to osteoporosis. But we've also noticed that a lot of patients with osteoporosis get distal radius fractures. That's where it makes sense, right? You're having a fall. You stretch out your hands, you fall on your hands, and you get a distal radius fracture. <laughs> well, we have noticed in all of our clinical trials that there's a significant association between osteoporosis and distal radius fractures. Okay? Um, it's not absolute, but about a, th- a third of patients um, with distal radius fractures will, ha- will have osteoporosis. So men or women who are greater than 50 years old who have low-energy distal radius fractures, again, these are not the patients who are in car crashes. These are the, the patients like my mom who fell off a stool and broke her wrist. Okay. These are the ones who don't necessarily have osteoporosis, but because the association is so high, these are patients who should still be screened for them. So it is something to pay attention to. Right. And as a surgeon, um, when I think about how to treat someone, I take many factors into account. And I think one of the most important things is physiologic age. 
Okay. How active are you? How much do you need this hand? Um, I look at hand dominance, right? So if you have a right-sided fracture, I may treat it differently than, say, if it was your left hand because you may need the right hand more for your activities of daily living. Your occupational functional demands matter, right? So if you are a musician and you need the dexterity, I may treat you more aggressively with surgery than someone else, okay? Um, as, on the other side, if you're sedentary, you don't have many demands. Um, then I may not subject you to the risk of surgery. And in fact, you may do just fine without anything at all. all right? Then I look at the actual fracture characteristics. I look at how broken it is, how smashed it is, okay? how many pieces. And I also think about your bone quality. Did you have a hip fracture in the past? Do you have a history of osteoporosis? If I'm looking at your bone and it's really just an eggshell of bone, any plates or screws I'm going to put in there, it's not really going to hold anything. And so surgery may actually make things worse. So in many elderly patients who are sedentary, um, these can be treated without surgery. All right? And certainly in our studies, we've been able to show that in elderly patients, there may be no difference between surgery and no surgery. Okay? So this is one of my patients. You can see she was, um, I believe she was 65, had a fall. You can see that she has a fracture along here. This is the ulna. This is the distal radius. This is the hand. This is the thumb side, that's the small finger side. Okay, you can see that there are multiple pieces that go into the joint itself. Okay. Um, and because she's 65 and physiologically pretty active, I decided to fix her, so I used plates and screws. Okay. And now we'll enter sort of the last but yet most important part of our talk. So I sort of talked about what fractures are, we sort of talked about different types of fractures, how to treat them, how to recognize them. But ultimately, what matters the most is how to prevent them, right? We don't want to get to the point where I'm having a discussion about treating your fracture. I don't even want to have that discussion. I want to get to the point where I'm talking about how do we prevent them from even happening. Or after your hip fracture, how to prevent another one from occurring. Okay? This is just one example that people from New Zealand come up with. And prevention doesn't just happen when you hit menopause. It doesn't happen when you retire. Actually, the, the concept of running osteoporosis begins from when you're a child. Okay. Um, I'm going to be flipping back and forth between these two diagrams, but I think it's important to know when you're a child, you're, you're, develop, you're building more bone. So most of your bone is cartilage when you're a fetus, and then that ossifies and that turns into actual bone. And you continue to build bone up until you're about in your 20s or 30s old, and that's your peak bone mass. And then afterwards, as you age, it goes down. We sort of talked about this before. And so the prevention of fractures and the prevention of osteoporosis begins when you're young. You want to try and build as much bone as possible. You want to basically start this trajectory as steep as you possibly can. So by the time you're in your 20s, by the time you reach 30, you're trying, you're trying to get the peak bone mass you have. All right, so when you're a child, we want to advocate for a healthy diet, um, a healthy lifestyle, exercise, all these things that help to stimulate bone growth um, and bone density. That message continues on as you're an adult. Right? We know that the bones respond to exercise. We know that bones respond to function. All right? um, the funny thing about um, being in space is that there's no gravity. Right? That's the great thing. Right, sounds awesome, right? You see all these movies, people flying around. Has anyone had dreams about flying before? Right, they're kind of awesome. Okay, um, you're weightless. You're like flying through the air, but gravity is important for us. Okay, because the bones respond to stress. Okay, your bones respond to stress. Form meets function. That is Wolf's law. That is one of the guiding principles in orthopedics. So if your body set body no longer experiences your body weight and no longer experiences gravity, 
it will say, well, what do you need me for? Right? And what happens in astronauts is they actually develop osteopenia, osteoporosis. Because when they're in space, their body thinks, you don't need me to be as strong. I don't need to support your weight anymore. And so the body actually flips on the switch and says, I'm going to resorb more bone than I'm going to build. All right? So again, the environment has a role to play in someone's bone health or bone density. So in applying it to those of us on Earth who experience gravity, if you don't stress your bones and if you're not stimulating it to get stronger through exercise, through mobility, the body is going to respond by saying, oh, you don't need me. So I'm going to give up. I'm not going to build as much. I'm going to start breaking down. Okay? And so one of the core messages we send to anyone, not just, el- not just um, elderly patients, not just middle-aged patients, but even people when they're young, exercise is important for your bone health because it teaches your body that you need it, that you need your bones to be healthy and strong. All right? Um, this, a lot of times people ask me about vitamin D and calcium. I always say it doesn't hurt, and I always encourage it um, because I think that it's one of the important building blocks. In fact, a huge number of us are actually vitamin D deficient. Okay. And then as we get into, um, as we start to hit um, into our middle age, as we hit into our 50s, 60s, then we, start to, then we need to start talking about the actual risks related to this. Then we actually have to look at the fact that we are aging, and that our peak bone mass is deteriorating over time. What are some ways that we can improve it? Again, diet, exercise, all those important things. But now, we, now that we know that we're at more risk with increasing age, now we have to start to assess a risk. Now we actually have to start thinking to ourselves, well, let me see what my bone density is like. And so as we, as we age, as we get older, we need to actually be aware of all the things we need to start checking for um, to make sure that we are healthy. So who should be screened for osteoporosis? So the men in here, you're thankfully off the hook. Right now, the U.S. Um, Preventative Services Task Force doesn't have enough evidence um, to, to recommend routine screening in men. Okay? It's not to say you shouldn't do it, but we can't, they can't say, oh, yeah, you really should. You really should. Okay, it's kind of like the state of politics right now, right? Um, so women over 40, 65 years old, every one of them should get um, screened for osteoporosis. Okay, and we'll talk about some of the different tools to actually do that. But if you're younger than 65, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get screened. You still need to take a look at all the other things, all the other risk factors in your life that could make things worse. So remember I talked about family history. So if you have a family member who had a hip fracture, that puts you at risk for osteoporosis, right? If you have a low body weight, Okay, that may also put you at risk, right? Because your bones are not going to be as strong. It's not experiencing as much body weight. If you have different habits that can weaken your bone, or if you're on different medications like chronic steroids for other reasons, whether it's some sort of rheumatologic disease or whether it's um, from asthma, um, those can all play a role in your risk factors. Medical comorbidities can also play a role, right? So, for example, celiac disease. Any sort of um, syndromes where you can't absorb as many nutrients or there's a problem with the the absorption can affect your ability to absorb the necessary nutrients for bone health. Um, Renal disease can certainly affect it. Diabetes, we know for sure, affects bone quality and health. In fact, I've operated on people who are 30 and have the bone quality of a 60-year-old. Okay. So all those do play a role in, in assessing your risk. Okay. The main save of a screening is, um, is an, of a screening is an imaging study that we call dual energy x-ray absorptiometry. 
really long name. It's really just known as DEXA. And the way it works is, is it basically takes x-rays of certain body parts. And through a technique, they're able to take away the soft tissue component from the x-ray. And they're able to just look at your bone density itself. Now, remember, they're only looking at bone density. They're not looking at bone size. They're not looking at bone structure. They're not looking at bone architecture. It's purely looking at density. Okay? And then from that, it calculates a score. There are two scores. There's really one that you need to know about. The T-score is what your bone density is relative to a 30-year-old. Okay. And then you have a Z-score, which is an age-adjusted score. So if you're 70 years old, um, your Z-score is what your bone score is relative to other 70-year-olds of your same gender. Okay. Whereas a T-score is related to, what, to um, someone in their 30s, someone at their peak bone mass. All right. If you have a T-score um, greater than negative 1, Okay, so negatives mean that you have less bone mass than a 30-year-old. Kind of makes sense, right? You have less bone mass than a 30-year-old who is young and healthy. If, if it's minus 1 to minus 2.5, it's considered osteopenia. It means they have weak bones. Okay, it hasn't, you haven't defined osteoporosis yet, but you just have weak bones. But if you have minus 2.5 or lower, that is the diagnosis of osteoporosis, and that's when patients begin the treatments. Okay. If you have minus 3.5 or lower than that, that is called severe osteoporosis. Why does this matter? Well, we, we, there, there's been a ton of work looking at T-scores. Um, this is an example. So if we look at someone's age over time, let's say they have a pretty good T-score, so minus 1.0 on the cusp of osteopenia. Their five-year fracture risk when you're 65 is less than one. Okay, And at 85, maybe two. You take someone who has osteoporosis, minus 2.5, and all of a sudden their, their fracture risk jumps from 2 to 7. If you have severe osteoporosis, that number will hit 18 20%. So T-score predicts your hip fracture risk. Okay? Same thing with vertebral fractures, right? We see that in varying T with worsening T-scores, you continuously jump up in terms of your fracture risk. So the DEXA is a reference standard. That's, that is the gold standard for how we diagnose osteoporosis. That's the diagnosis for how we screen patients for diagnosis. That's how we, that is a gold standard for how we follow how someone's responding to treatment. Okay? But it's not perfect like any sort of study that we have. So if you have a small body frame okay, that may overestimate your risk okay, because it, it picks up only your bone density. And if you have a small frame, it's relative to your body size. It may be appropriate, but it's just doing an absolute number. Um, this is in contrast to arthritis, because in arthritis, your body doesn't have the cartilage anymore, so it actually makes your bones sclerotic, so it makes your bone thicker and harder. And so while your bones may be weaker itself, that may throw off the measurements because it'll pick up on those areas where you have dense bone from the cartilage NOS, not, not because of the, um, the osteoporosis itself. We've looked at other methods, too, and these are currently being studied, so we can use a CT scan, we can use MRI, we can use ultrasound. Right? All these have flaws. So a CT scan, you know, have a lot of radiation. It may not always be available. There are high costs associated with that. Same with MRI, high costs, availability. It's difficult to sometimes get a routine MRI on a on patient. Um, ultrasound has shown a lot of promise, but this can be finicky. It's actually highly user-dependent. So right now, it's not the gold standard either, even though it doesn't expose you to that much radiation. But what if you already have a fracture? Well, if you have a hip or spine fracture, it doesn't matter what your T-score is because that has already defined you as having osteoporosis. These are sentinel events that define your disease. Right? Those are ones we care about. So if you have a hip fracture or a spine fracture, that means you have osteoporosis. Okay? And so 
patients who have these fractures, they really should um, have a DEXA scan, not so much to diagnose osteoporosis, but to assess your severity and guide your treatment. All right. And after these such fractures, since we know you have osteoporosis, we need to refer you to a primary care provider, endocrinologist, someone to actually start to treat the osteoporosis. Um, as I mentioned before, if you have a low energy disc radius fractures, it doesn't mean you have osteoporosis, but because the association is so high, these are patients who should also be screened for osteoporosis. There's another tool that, that we can use to actually evaluate your 10-year risk of developing a hip or other major osteoporotic fracture. This is a tool you can use online. So you put in your age, you, you click into different risk factors that we've talked about, you put in your weight, you put in your height, um, and then you put in your bone density score, and it will calculate what your risk is in, in the next 10 years of developing some sort of major osteoporotic fracture. So once we've actually diagnosed osteoporosis, Okay. Then we talk about different treatment. There are multiple different types of treatment, but basically there are multiple different types of medication treatments, whether it's replacing your hormones like estrogen replacement therapy or whether it's medications that actually stop the resorption. There are multiple medications, and I'm not going to go through them in a lot of detail um, with you today, um, but we have great treatments out there to actually treat them. Right? Now, how do we prevent secondary fractures? Let's say you already had a fracture. Okay. Um, that fracture alone puts you at an 86% increased risk of any fracture, so it's almost double your risk. Okay? After an index fracture, it's actually very crucial to have your bone health evaluated and to begin treatment for osteoporosis um, if that is the case. So again, you have medications to actually improve the strength, decrease the amount of bone resorption you have, decrease your fracture risk. But another component to this, and this is where I come in, this is where other providers come in, and this is where you can come in as a layperson, as someone not involved in the medical community, but with your family, with your friends, is to talk about fall prevention, okay, at the home, um, taking care of your family, making sure that they're in a safe environment, okay, because it's not just about their overall bone health, it's also about their safety, right? Um, and this is sort of the last main point that I will make um, and this is something that's come under a lot of scrutiny, um, and that's kind of sobering as a surgeon, as a physician, is that we in the medical profession, even now, even with current modern medicine, we've been inadequate in diagnosing and referring patients for screening and treatment after sustaining a uh, fragility fracture. Meaning that if you look at the patients who actually sustain a hip fracture, right, we know they have osteoporosis, we know they should get treatment. Right? We know they, we need to assess their DEXA scan. This is all throughout the literature. We all know this from medical school, from our training. And yet, if you look at the number of patients who actually get um, screened for it, who actually get the scans, who actually get treatment, that number is very low. So we as physicians aren't doing our jobs. And so my message to you guys as, um, as people who are not in medicine is that you can do better than us because you can understand that after these fractures, it's really important to seek treatment, to be active, and to actually prevent all these secondary fractures. So, we're, so where we fall short as physicians, as surgeons, um, you guys can step up and say, hey, no, this is what actually needs to be done for my mother, my sister, my father, um, for myself, okay? And that's probably the best takeaway point I can give you tonight. So to summarize, fragility fractures are due to structurally weak bone from osteoporosis, Fragility fractures are associated with profound functional loss and mortality risk. Remember, in women over 65, same mortality as cancer. Higher chance of getting osteoporosis than breast cancer. Okay? Fracture prevention is critical in osteoporosis. You have a high rate of recurrent fragility fracture. Um, and so you want to try to prevent that if you already had a fracture. Patients need to be timely screened, they need to be assessed, and they need to be treated also in a timely and appropriate way. Okay? So thank you for your attention, um, and I will take any questions. The question was, um, 
how does nutrition play into the bone health? Is that correct? Right. So, and from that, what can we do about our nutrition to try to optimize our bone health? Well, I'm, I'm obviously going to advocate for a healthy diet, right? Plenty of fruits and vegetables, plenty of nutrients for your overall body health. Um, when we talk about nutrition, there's also there's also a need to stress the amount of sugar that we have in our society, the the risk that our diet has in causing other diseases like diabetes, um, that we know affects bone health. Um, uh, taking in calcium and vitamin D and all those precursors certainly help. We know that that does help to a certain extent. Um, and so those are the main things that I would advocate for. I don't advocate any particular diet. I don't advocate for any particular fads. I think we as a society generally know what's good for us. Um, I think we should focus on less on processed foods, less on artificial ingredients, and really just get back to some things that are healthier, more wholesome. Yeah, yeah. I think you're specifically talking to the bisphosphonate drugs. So the bisphosphonate drugs are a class of drugs that have actually changed the way um, we've dealt with um, osteoporosis. They have actually revolutionized the way we've dealt with osteoporosis. And they're, they're one of the mainstays of treatments nowadays. Um, so I have to say that first, that they're great drugs. They've done a lot of good. But there are risk factors associated with them. So you can get avascular necrosis of the jaw, for example. Okay. And something that I see more and more now is that they can actually, they, because they change the metabolism of your bone, they can actually cause, they can actually be associated with a fracture. So um, bisphosphonates act by inhibiting the osteoclast function. So remember the osteoclasts are the cells that help to break down the bone? Okay, they're the ones with the acids, they're the ones with enzymes, and they're the, they initiate the remodeling cycle. Okay? So the bisphosphonates tip the scale so that way, instead of having net resorption, it's going to be neutral or maybe you'll actually build bone. Okay? And we're still unclear exactly why that happens, why in certain patients they, they build up very thick cortices and then they break. We think it may be because, because you've changed the way that the bone metabolizes right? and you've actually taken away some of the remodeling process that that may then affect your body's ability to heal itself. Right, because osteoclasts are important for not just initiating the breakdown of bone, but then also um, stimulating the other cells to actually build bone. Okay? If we take the osteoclast out of the equation, then we're affecting the entire modeling process, and that may also have effects on our skeletal health. No, I don't think anything's ever been proven about that. Um, I think it has more to do with the fact that you're drinking soda, period. You know? um, and because of that, the, the soda... So sugar itself, we know, has, can have addictive properties. Okay? And I've experienced it in my own life. When um, I used to, I remember in college, I would drink a 16-ounce cup of coffee, and I'd put like 12 packets of sugar. Yeah, it was a lot. It was, it was insane. It was insane. How I don't have diabetes is a mystery to me. Um, and I've stopped it. I, I, in the past two years, I put nothing in my coffee, just some cream, and that's it. But I do notice that like, when I put in one packet of sugar, there's a part of me that says, ooh, that was sweet. Right? It, it has, it's addictive, right? But it, the problem with sugar isn't just that you're getting more calories. It's that you're not putting any nutrients in your body. And we see this in diabetics all the time. They can, have, they can be obese, but they're not nutritious. They can be obese, but they can actually be malnourished. So your body size has nothing to do with your nutrition levels. And that's because they, they feed their body all these calories, so it stores all that energy, but there's nothing in that energy. There's nothing to actually um, feed the rest of your body systems. Sure, sure. So the first question um, was has to do with the rising incidence of this. Is that correct? Um, 
and related to it, well, why is it why is the incidence been increasing? And then the second is um, why not why not why not screen earlier when we can make more of a difference? So the first part was um, why has the number been increasing? Well, we have an, a growing aging population. We're living longer, right? And, and we're having more people, right? So it's um, that's the overall incidence, okay? Versus how many people are actually out there in the world. So we have an uh, we have a longer lifespan. We have an increasing population, and so this problem will naturally just sort of rise. Okay, um, why don't we screen earlier? And I think that's a, a more difficult question to answer because you have to, it, and it comes down to how you design a screening test, right? It's got to be purposeful. Per, purposeful. It's got to be meaningful. You got to catch a disease early enough to actually make a difference. Okay, and. Um, it's got to be affordable and and, and um, accessible to patients, right? So a CT scan may not be the best screening test because you have a lot of radiation and cost and availability, right? Um, that may change over time. If we're noticing that, hey, we, we can actually catch these things earlier, then yeah, I think that would change the numbers. But this is just sort of where the, in a way, 65 is a number that sort of made the most sense in looking all, at all the literature. So the question is, why is it that how you have one fracture, you're more likely to get another? Okay. I think that is a, multi, a multivariable question. Okay. I think the first thing is that by doing that fracture, you've already proven they have weak bones. Okay. So we already know that you're at risk developing one. The second possibility is that maybe you are dealing with a disability from that first, let's say you have a hip fracture, Right? And we said that after a hip fracture, you have profound disability. Right? And you're dependent on a walker, you're no longer independent. So your function goes down, so your ability to balance yourself and compensate also goes down with that. Okay? Um, the other thing is that um, as, as we age and as we deal with that dysfunction, our ability to prevent falls may also um, go down with that. Okay? So you're putting yourself not just at more biologic risk, but also physical risk. So correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong with this question. The question was, um, you can have a total joint replacement for arthritis. You can have a total joint replacement for a hip fracture. Why is there a difference in mortality? Yes. Is that correct? That is there are studies actually looking at national um, samples. I don't know if it exactly answers your question, but we do know that there's a higher risk. There's a difference in mortality. There's a difference in complications. Okay. Um, the, there are more complications with the total hip replacement in a hip fracture than you would have in arthritis, okay? okay? But it probably has something to do with someone's physiologic status, okay? Their overall health, right? We talked about health problems, other comorbidities, other risk factors playing a role in someone's osteoporotic risk and a risk for a hip fracture. So if you looked at the patient population who is getting a joint replacement for arthritis versus the population that's getting a hip replacement for um, a hip fracture, they're probably gonna be very different in terms of their physiology. And that probably drives the mortality and the outcome. Yeah. So the question is, um, for, those, for those people who need long-term corticosteroids, and that is a risk factor for osteoporosis, how can you, what can you do to sort of mitigate that risk? Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Um, 
It depends on the reason why you need those glucosteroids, okay? Um, in many cases, for patients who need it long-term, they need it to control their other disease, right? And then for especially patients with rheumatological diseases or any sort of inflammatory diseases that they need to keep control just to even walk, just to even eat, that you can't change. It's not really a modifiable risk factor versus nutrition, which you can change. And so it's not so much about decreasing the risk of that. It's about... Um, improving your health to try and decrease your overall risk through other factors, through other modifiable factors. So the question was, if there are lesions in your spine, does that influence the risk of your fragility fractures? It probably does, depending on the nature of those lesions, um, especially if they're lytic lesions. Um, it, I mean, it's directly affecting their structures. In a way, it's almost pathologic, leading, it's heading towards more of the pathologic route. So the question is, does it make any sense to learn how to fall? And I think that's a really interesting question. And I'm wondering if maybe we should. We don't, we don't typically, but it kind of makes sense, right? A lot of hip fractures happen from patients who fall directly on their hip or fall on their knee. But if we can find a way to sort of brace their fall or pad their fall to lessen the impact, would that make a difference? I think that would be hard to study, but it is an interesting thing that is probably doesn't cost that much more. It's just another element of the training that we give people. So that's a very interesting thought, yeah. Yeah, so the question is, if hip fractures define osteoporosis, so in our minds it's a sentinel event that says once you have it, you have osteoporosis, then what about other fractures, for example, knee fractures? Um, not so much, um, and this is, I don't have a great answer for why other fractures aren't, um, but we also just don't see them as many as much as we do. Right, the, we look at hip fractures, and, and you saw the incidence of them, right, and the relation to osteoporosis. Even osteoporosis patients, we just tend not to see as many fractures around the knee, like tibial plateau fractures, like distal femur fractures. We do see them; they do happen, um, but generally, they, they don't have the same mechanism, and they don't have the same incidence or prevalence that we do see as opposed to osteoporosis. Okay, so even though yes, it's the same bone, and they're all sort of weak. Yeah, and it's weight-bearing, and it's theoretically all your bones should be weak. If it's weak in the hip, it should also be weak elsewhere. But we just don't see it as much as, as we do in hip fractures. Like, I have operated on maybe one. I've only seen maybe, like, one or two in the past, like, two months. I see a hip fracture pretty much every single day. Yeah. Yeah, because we're, you know, we're at a busy trauma center, and so we see these things all the time. I've yet to see, I mean, I've, again, I've only seen, like, maybe one distal femur fracture, um, and that's a person who's paraplegic. I've seen plenty of table plateau fractures, but those are patients in motor vehicle accidents. Um, I maybe have seen one or two elderly osteoporotic table plateau fractures. They just don't really happen in osteoporosis. But I see hip fractures all the time. There are some days, some weekends, I operate on two or three. I think in part, so the question is, why were the hip, why is the hip so much more prone to these fragility fractures? I think it has to do with the geometry and the forces that have to go through it. The hip experiences a lot of forces um, to go through it, to balance the pelvis, okay, to um, distribute the weight. Um, looking at the anatomy of the hip, there's a lot of stress that actually goes through the area right below the trochanters um, on the order of, I forget the number, like 1,100 like newtons or something like that based on the old diagrams. So there's a lot of force that actually goes through your hip to actually maintain your weight. All right. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.